can't be neutral on the moving train I told y'all before You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught How do you know what they was taught was correct? Y'all you know I mean? Dig into the real history of this country And the fact that it was built on blood Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes, at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. On that site, you'll also find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You'll also find a link there to send me a message. First up, we have breaking news. Because of the infrequency of this podcast, I rarely have breaking news. But this particular story, related to my second story, is just out today. This piece is written by Roman Loyola is published at macworld.com. Apple on Friday announced that the three features it revealed to stop the spread of child sexual abuse material, CSAM, will not be available at the fall release of iOS 15, iPadOS 15, watchOS 8, and macOS 12 Monterey. The company will make the CSAM features available, quote, later this year in updates. In a press release, Apple stated that, quote, This program is ambitious and protecting children is an important responsibility. These efforts will evolve and expand over time. That is such a poor choice of words because the primary reason, one of the primary reasons that Apple is delaying this is because of the tremendous outcry from activists and from people in the industry from privacy experts um, that are very concerned, particularly concerned about these efforts will evolve and expand over time. The, the, the concern is not so much about exactly the intended use that Apple is stating for these functions, but the possibility that they can easily evolve and expand and be used for other more egregious, uh, more um, destructive um, privacy invasions of users. Apple revealed the CSAM features in early August, and while many in the tech community applauded Apple's efforts to protect children, Many also voiced concerns about the potential for how the technology behind the CSAM features could be used for other surveillance purposes. Over 90 policy and rights groups published an open letter urging Apple to cancel its CSAM features. The main feature that sparked controversy is the CSAM detection feature, where images on your device are scanned for hashes, and those hashes are then checked on a list of known CSAM hashes. The argument made against this feature is that it could be implemented for other uses. For example, a government could demand that Apple create a similar process to check for images deemed detrimental to the government's policies. 
Apple stated that in such situations, it would turn down such a request. But the declaration did not create any confidence within the concerned. Governments can and will always create consequences for not obeying an order, which could cause Apple to change its policy. There's also the possibility that Apple could decide to use the technology for its own purpose other than CSAM, though doing so would weaken Apple's image as a company concerned about user privacy. And there are many, many cases related to the App Store and apps that are available in the App Stores globally in which Apple has bowed down to pressure or maybe just requests or legal restrictions in particular countries to not allow apps to be presented and sold in those countries. So Apple has a history of compliance with foreign governments when it comes to those governments requesting Apple take certain action. And for more on the story and a lot more background into the technology and what Apple is building, here's a piece by Edward Snowden. This is published at edwardsnowden.substack.com. By now you've probably heard that Apple plans to push a new and uniquely intrusive surveillance system out to many of the more than 1 billion iPhones it has sold, which all run the behemoth's proprietary take-it-or-leave-it software. This new offensive is tentatively slated to begin with the launch of iOS 15, almost certainly in mid-September, with the devices of its U.S. user base designated as the initial targets. We're told that other countries will be spared, but not for long. You might have noticed that I haven't mentioned which problem it is that Apple is purporting to solve. Why? Because it doesn't matter. Having read thousands upon thousands of remarks on this growing scandal, it has become clear to me that many understand it doesn't matter, but few, if any, have been willing to actually say it. Speaking candidly, if that's still allowed, that's the way it always goes when someone of institutional significance launches a campaign to defend an indefensible intrusion into our private spaces. They make a mad dash to the supposed high ground from which they speak in low, solemn tones about their moral mission before fervently invoking the dread specter of the four horsemen of the infopocalypse, warning that only a dubious amulet or suspicious software update can save us from the most threatening members of our species. Suddenly, everybody with a principled objection is forced to preface their concern with apologetic throat-clearing in the establishment of bona fides. I lost a friend when the towers came down. However, as a parent, I understand this is a real problem. But, as a parent, I'm here to tell you that sometimes it doesn't matter why the man in the handsome suit is doing something. What matters are the consequences. Apple's new system, regardless of how anyone tries to justify it, will permanently redefine what belongs to you and what belongs to them. How? The task Apple intends its new surveillance system to perform, preventing their cloud systems from being used to store digital contraband, in this case, unlawful images uploaded by their customers, is traditionally performed by searching their systems. While it's still problematic for anybody to search through a billion people's private files, 
The fact that they can only see the files you gave them is a crucial limitation. Now, however, that's all set to change. Under the new design, your phone will now perform these searches on Apple's behalf before your photos have even reached their iCloud servers and yada yada yada. If enough forbidden content is discovered, law enforcement will be notified. I intentionally wave away the technical and procedural details of Apple's system here, some of which are quite clever, because they, like our man in the handsome suit, merely distract from the most pressing fact. The fact that in just a few weeks, Apple plans to erase the boundary dividing which devices work for you and which devices work for them. Why is this so important? Once the precedent has been set that it is fit and proper for even a pro-privacy company like Apple to make products that betray their users and owners, Apple itself will lose all control over how that precedent is applied. As soon as the public first came to learn of the spy phone plan, experts began investigating its technical weaknesses and the many ways it could be abused, primarily within the parameters of Apple's design. Although these valiant vulnerability research efforts have produced compelling evidence that the system is seriously flawed, they also seriously miss the point. Apple gets to decide whether or not their phones will monitor their owners' infractions for the government, but it's the government that gets to decide what constitutes an infraction and how to handle it. For its part, Apple says their system in its initial version 1 design has a narrow focus. It only scrutinizes photos intended to be uploaded to iCloud, although for 85% of its customers, that means every photo, and it does not scrutinize them beyond a simple comparison against a database of specific examples of previously identified child sexual abuse material, CSAM. If you're an enterprising pedophile with a basement full of CSAM-tainted iPhones, Apple welcomes you to entirely exempt yourself from these scans by simply flipping the Disable iCloud Photos switch. A bypass which reveals that the system was never designed to protect children, as they would have you believe, but rather to protect their brand. As long as you keep that material off their servers and so keep Apple out of the headlines, Apple doesn't care. So what happens when, in a few years at the latest, a politician points that out and, in order to, quote, protect the children, bills are passed in the legislature to prohibit this double bypass, effectively compelling Apple to scan photos that aren't backed up to iCloud? What happens when a party in India demands that they start scanning for memes associated with a separatist movement? What happens when the UK demands they scan for a library of terrorist imagery? How long do we have left before the iPhone in your pocket begins quietly filing reports about encountering, quote, extremist political material, or about your presence at a, quote, civil disturbance, or simply about your iPhone's possession of a video clip that contains, or maybe or maybe not contains, a blurry image of a passerby who resembles, according to an algorithm, a person of interest. If Apple demonstrates the capability and willingness 
to continuously remotely search every phone for evidence of one particular type of crime? These are questions for which they will have no answer. And yet an answer will come, and it will come from the worst lawmakers of the worst governments. This is not a slippery slope. It's a cliff. One particular frustration for me is that I know some people at Apple, and I even like some people at Apple, bright, principled people who should know better. Actually, who do know better. Every security expert in the world is screaming themselves hoarse now, imploring Apple to stop. Even those experts who, in more normal circumstances, reliably argue in favor of censorship. Even some survivors of child exploitation are against it. And yet, as the OG designer Galileo once said, it moves. Faced with a blistering torrent of global condemnation, Apple has responded not by addressing any concerns or making any changes, or, more sensibly, by just scrapping the plan altogether, but by deploying their man-in-the-handsome-suit software chief, who resembles the well-moisturized villain from a movie about Wall Street, to give quotes to, yes, the Wall Street Journal, about how sorry the company is for the, quote, confusion it has caused, but how the public shouldn't worry, Apple, quote, feels very good about what they're doing. Neither the message nor the messenger was a mistake. Apple dispatched its SVP for software, Kendall, to speak with the journal, not to protect the company's users, but to reassure the company's investors. His role was to create the false impression that this is not something that you or anyone should be upset about. And collaterally, his role was to ensure this new, quote, policy would be associated with the face of an Apple executive other than CEO Tim Cook, just in case the rollout, or the fallout, results in a corporate beheading. Why? Why is Apple risking so much for a CSAM detection system that has been denounced as dangerous and easily repurposed for surveillance and censorship by the very computer scientists who've already put it to the test? What could be worth the decisive shattering of the foundational Apple idea that an iPhone, iPhone belongs to the person who carries it rather than to the company that made it? Apple, quote, designed in California, assembled in China, purchased by you, owned by us. The one answer to these questions that the optimists keep coming back to is the likelihood that Apple is doing this as a prelude to finally switching over to, quote, end-to-end -end encryption for everything its customers store on iCloud, something Apple had previously intended to do before backtracking. In a dismaying display of cowardice, after the FBI secretly complained. For the unfamiliar, what I'm describing here as end-to-end -end encryption is a somewhat complex concept, but briefly, it means that only the two endpoints sharing a file, say two phones on opposite sides of the internet, are able to decrypt it. Even if the file were being stored and served from an iCloud server in Cupertino, as far as Apple or any other middleman in a handsome suit is concerned, that file is just an indecipherable blob of random garbage. The file only becomes a text message, a video, a photo, or whatever it is, when it is paired with a key that is possessed only by you and by those with whom you choose to share it. 
This is the goal of end-to-end -end encryption, drawing a new and ineradicable line in the digital sand dividing your data and their data. It allows you to trust a service provider to store your data without granting them any ability to understand it. This would mean that even Apple itself could no longer be expected to rummage through your iCloud account with its grabby little raccoon hands, and therefore could not be expected to hand it over to any government that can stamp a sheet of paper, which is precisely why the FBI, again, secretly, complained. For Apple to realize this original vision would have represented a huge improvement in the privacy of our devices, effectively delivering the final word in a 30-year-long debate over establishing a new industry standard, and by extension, the new global expectation that parties seeking access to data from a device must obtain it from that device, rather than turning the internet and its ecosystem into a spy machine. Unfortunately, I'm here to report that once again, the optimists are wrong. Apple's proposal to make their phones inform on and betray their owners marks the dawn of a dark future, one to be written in the blood of the political opposition of a hundred countries that will exploit this system to the hilt. See, the day after this system goes live, it will no longer matter whether or not Apple ever enables end-to-end -end encryption because our iPhones will be reporting their contents before our keys are even used. I can't think of any other company that has so proudly and so publicly distributed spyware to its own devices, and I can't think of a threat more dangerous to a product's security than the mischief of its own maker. There is no fundamental technological limit to how far the precedent Apple is establishing can be pushed meaning the only restraint is Apple's all-too-flexible company policy, something governments understand all too well. I would say there should be a law, but I fear it would only make things worse. We are bearing witness to the construction of an all-seeing eye, an eye of improvidence, under whose aegis every iPhone will search itself for whatever Apple wants, or for whatever Apple is directed to want. They are inventing a world in which every product you purchase owes its highest loyalty to someone other than its owner. To put it bluntly, this is not an innovation, but a tragedy, a disaster in the making. Or maybe I'm confused. Or maybe I just think different. And of course, we know the government's already demand of tech companies a tremendous amount. And to a certain extent, so far, Apple has been able to avoid some of that by not knowing and not owning and not managing the data, the contents of our devices. Next up is a piece written by Tom McKay. This is published at gizmodo.com. U.S. citizens can be kicked out of the country based on the findings of a secret algorithm. The Department of Homeland Security is using an Amazon-hosted system called Atlas 
that analyzes millions of records and can be used to automatically flag naturalized Americans for the revocation of their citizenship, The Intercept reported this week. Atlas is part of the U.S. Customs and Immigration Services Fraud Detection and National Security Data System, FDNSDS, and runs on Amazon Web Services servers. Its official purpose is to compare case records from the immigration system to other federal databases, looking for indications of criminal, dishonest, or dangerous behavior, as well as inconsistencies that authorities might see as evidence of fraud or using multiple identities. Documents obtained by the Open Society Justice Initiative and Muslim Activists Through Freedom of Information Act requests and shared with The Intercept show that the system is ultimately designed with the end game of deportation in mind, and it provides tools that could help immigration authorities go after naturalized citizens based on decades-old administrative mistakes. The Intercept wrote that the denaturalization was once very rare, but under George W. Bush's administration, the DHS digitized fingerprint data and identified some 1,029 people who had accused of evading deportation orders and going on to become naturalized citizens anyway. Barack Obama's administration, no stranger to devastating mass deportations, did subsequently urge officials only to strip the citizenship of those posing a clear danger. But his openly racist successor, Donald Trump, ramped the machinery of the denaturalization machine back up. The Justice Department announced it intended to refer some 1,600 naturalized citizens for prosecution under his tenure in 2018, according to The Intercept. The DOJ requested $207.6 million in the 2019 and 2020 budgets to pursue hundreds of additional leads, review 700,000 immigration records under a similar program, and create an office devoted to stripping citizenship from those accused of lying their way through the process. USCIS documents obtained by the Open Society Initiative and shared with The Intercept showed that as of April 2020, USCIS had filed paperwork related to denaturalization in at least 2,628 cases, of which 745 were pending and 502 had been referred to the DOJ. According to The Intercept, documents show Atlas analyzes information including biometrics like fingerprints, as well as draws information from databases, including the FBI's Terrorism Watch List and the National Crime Information Center, which have often, quote, been criticized as being poorly managed. In what a 2020 privacy document describes as exceptional instances, the system may also take race and ethnicity into account when making determinations. Another 2016 privacy assessment of FDNSDS shows Atlas can also flag individuals based on their known associates, stating it has the capability to identify, quote, linkages or relationships among individuals to assist in identifying non-obvious relationships with a potential nexus to criminal or terrorist activities. Some of the information is classified. It's hard not to see the use of a secret algorithm as merely a way to shield the process from outside scrutiny, such as whether infamously unreliable sources of information like gang databases or data harvesting contractors factor into Atlas decisions. 
The Intercept wrote that DHS refuses to clarify exactly how the system works or what data points it uses to flag immigrants for potential revocation of citizenship. But the documents indicate that USCIS can cross-check immigrants' records against Atlas in a wide variety of situations. Quote, Immigrants come into contact with Atlas according to the 2020 Privacy Assessment when one presents him or herself to the USCIS for some reason, of which there are many. When new derogatory information is associated with the individual in one or more U.S. government systems, or, according to the 2016 privacy document, whenever FDNS performs an administrative investigation. This apparently can happen even after an immigration-related decision has been made. Among the FOIA documents shared with The Intercept is a USCIS memo noting that Atlas is used to detect, quote, fraud patterns in immigration benefit filings, either pre- or post-adjudication suggesting that an immigrant could be subject to algorithmic scrutiny indefinitely after their filing is approved. The 2020 document describes that Atlas, quote, contains a rules engine that applies pattern-based algorithms to look for indicators of fraud, public safety, and national security concerns, which is described as, quote, predictive. DHS doesn't disclose the way Atlas's algorithm works or what data points are ultimately used to generate red flags. Though the 2020 document claims that there are rules limiting the consideration of individuals' connection solely by birth or citizenship to another country, unless there is a need, quote, based on an assessment of intelligence and risks and in which alternatives do not meet security needs. According to The Intercept, the USCIS spreadsheet from 2020 obtained via FOIA shows that 12 categories of Atlas alert, including notifications that appear to refer to individuals protected by the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, program, the Department of Defense, national security categories, and multiple identities. The 2020 privacy documents note that USCIS presumes all data submitted to it is accurate and places the onus of the responsibility for correcting bad data on the individual being screened. The documents instead say such corrections require the individual under investigation to reach out to an administrator of the original database, the Intercept wrote. For example, an individual seeking to change the outcome of an Atlas review that fast-tracked them for denaturalization based on an erroneous entry in the FBI's terrorism or criminal database would first have to determine the nature of the error and then appeal directly to the FBI to fix it. The same would apply to someone who had inconsistencies on old paperwork, thanks to shoddy work by attorneys or translators, or who did everything correctly, but had immigration authorities screw up handling or analysis of decades-old fingerprint records. Given that the staggering lack of transparency within the U.S. immigration system, the vulnerability of those adversely targeted by it, and the possibility the original source information might be classified, the likelihood of contesting such mistakes before they snowball into full-blown removal proceedings seems slim. When Atlas makes a negative determination, the Intercept wrote, it sends out a, quote, system-generated notification that is triaged and sent to FDNSDS if potential, potentially actionable. 
A human review at FDSDS is then used to identify whether it can carry out possible criminal denaturalization referral and refer the flagged individual as a possible criminal suspect to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is well known for prioritizing aggressive enforcement above actually bothering to ensure it's working with accurate information. According to the LA Times, ICE regularly sucks citizens who have done nothing wrong into its dragnet based on shoddy investigations and has faced dozens of lawsuits for false imprisonment based on cursory computer searches, with agents often never bothering to gather or deliberately ignoring evidence to the contrary, like passports, interviews, and conflicting records. In 2019 alone, according to The Intercept, Atlas ran 16.9 million screenings and generated 120,000 red flags on the basis of suspected fraud or, quote, threats to national security and public safety. One USCIS flowchart shows as few as four steps can be involved between Atlas and a referral to ICE. Individuals who are denaturalized are not always removed from the country. But The Intercept found that numerous USCIS and ICE documents indicated the agency's preferred outcome is deportation, with one 2009 ICE memo instructing agents to pursue detention and removal in cases of suspected identity or benefits fraud, even when the DOJ has declined to criminally prosecute. One USCIS spreadsheet showed that in 2018 and 2019, authorities rejected 10 out of 10 settlement proposals that included protections against deportation. Quote, the whole point of Atlas is to screen and investigate so that the government can deny applications or refer for criminal or civil immigration enforcement, Deborah Choi of Muslim Advocates told The Intercept. The purpose of the secret rules and predictive analytics and algorithms are to find things to investigate. In addition to using secret algorithms to uh, enhance its decision-making, the U.S. government uses implicit and explicit threats against uh, tech companies to get them to do what they want. This next piece is written by Caitlin Johnstone, published at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. The elephant in the room with the ongoing controversy about the Biden administration's push for more internet censorship is the fact that both the U.S. government and the Silicon Valley tech companies who are being pushed to censor are acutely aware that those companies can be brought to their knees by antitrust cases and other regulation if they don't censor people's voices in accordance with the government's wishes. After Press Secretary Jen Psaki admitted on Thursday that the administration has given Facebook a list of accounts to ban for spreading, quote, misinformation about the COVID vaccine, she has now doubled down, saying that people who circulate such materials online should be banned from not just one, but all social media platforms. You shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others for providing misinformation out there, Saki told the press on Friday. When asked by the press for his thoughts on companies like Facebook, President Biden said the failure of those platforms to adequately censor posts about the vaccine makes them guilty of, quote, killing people. 
When confronted about the extremely serious implications of a U.S. presidential administration telling social media platforms who to censor, Saki said the administration wasn't censoring people, but merely raising the issues with the tech companies. Quote, We don't take anything down, said Saki. We don't block anything. Facebook and any private sector company makes decisions about what information should be on their platform. Our point is that there is information that is leading to people not taking the vaccine and people are dying as a result. And we have a responsibility as a public health matter to raise that issue. Saki is not technically lying, but she isn't telling the truth either. While it's true that the Biden administration is not directly blocking or taking down social media posts, it is also making social media companies a Godfather-style offer they can't refuse. For years, the U.S. government has been making it abundantly clear to the giants of Silicon Valley that if they do not greatly escalate censorship of undesirable content per Washington's instructions, there will be consequences. In 2017, Senator Dianne Feinstein threatened social media platforms that because of alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election, they need to start utilizing more censorship or else face consequences, saying, quote, you created these platforms and they are being misused and you have to be the ones to do something about it or we will in 2019 louisiana representative cedric richmond issued a similar threat saying social media platforms had better start regulating what he considers harmful content on their own or the government will take matters into its own hands quote they better go they better go do it because what they don't want is for us to do it, because we're not going to get it right, Richmond said. We're going to make it swift, we're going to make it strong, and we're going to hold them very accountable. Well, they don't usually hold companies very accountable to anything. What they usually do is create a, a poor law that sounds good on paper, put a bunch of loopholes in it, so it doesn't actually have the effect that is intended, but has a lot of horrible side effects. Quote, we have the First Amendment, and we're very reluctant to pass speech laws, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler told the Washington Post in 2019. But there's a problem, and we have to deal with it. Let's see what happens by just pressuring them first, Nadler added. I'm reluctant to have regulation of speech. It usually goes too far. I don't know that we have to get there yet. As Glenn Greenwald noted on Twitter, following the latest admissions from the Biden administration, executives from these tech companies are being regularly hauled before Congress and, quote, threatened with legislative and regulatory retaliation if they don't conduct censorship in alignment with the will of the U.S. government. We saw this in 2017 when representatives from top internet platforms were brought before Congress and told they needed to adopt a, quote, mission statement expressing their commitment to prevent fomenting of discord, and we continue to see it through 2021. The reasons change, but the agenda remains the same. Sometimes it's foreign election meddling, sometimes it's a capital riot, sometimes it's domestic extremism and white supremacy, sometimes it's misinformation about virus and vaccines. But for every reason given the instruction is the same, censor online communications in accordance with the wishes of the U.S. government. Or else. These threats have been explicitly made, but really, 
they did not need to be. Everyone involved in this dance is acutely aware that the U.S. government has the ability to make things much harder and far less lucrative for these Silicon Valley tech companies. This could mean actions ranging from fines and minor regulations, all the way up to the revocation of Section 230 protections, or full-scale antitrust cases, which can go as far as breaking up online platforms in the same way the government broke up AT&T and Standard Oil. Yeah, how's that breakup of AT&T going for you? The stage is already set for massive antitrust measures to be implemented with the House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust finding last year that corporations like Facebook and Google are guilty of monopolistic practices and some less severe antitrust cases are already underway. So now we've got worldwide online speech being herded into a few monopolistic platforms and the government forcing those platforms with increasingly brazen with increasing brazenness to censor that speech in alignment with its dictates under threat of total destruction. The effect being, of course, U.S. government control of a vast swath of public speech, not just within the U.S., but around the world, which means an ungodly amount of narrative control, the ultimate prize for anyone who understands real power. The primary factor in determining what will happen in our world is not control of capital, nor control of government, nor control of resources, nor control of weapons, but control of narrative. All the others follow from narrative control. Control the narrative and you control where the weapons will go, where the capital will go, where the resources will go, what the government will do. Real power begins with narrative control. Understand this and you'll understand why governments, plutocrats, and media behave the way they do. So while antitrust laws ostensibly exist to protect the citizenry from corporate power, here they are being leveraged to ensure the union of corporate power and state power. The carrot is billions of dollars, and the stick is a threat of painful government intervention. Obviously, the U.S. government would prefer to simply have monopolistic corporations voluntarily censoring content in accordance with government interests. But for them, the only thing worse than having no monopolistic companies serving the empire would be having monopolistic companies which refuse to serve the empire. So the threat is being issued here. Censor the way we tell you to censor or your company will be broken down and replaced with one that will. And that's exactly what could easily happen. Facebook, Google, YouTube, or Twitter could easily be regulated into dysfunction or broken up into smaller companies, and then some other more government-aligned corporation could be allowed to take their place. Silicon Valley billionaires are hardly known for being the most principled people in existence to begin with, so that threat is all it would take to ensure they conduct themselves in alignment with the will of the empire. This is just one of the many, many types of glue that keeps power structures aligned with one another's interests with the U.S. centralized empire. If you want to be a billionaire and control massive amounts of wealth, you have to collaborate with existing power structures. Otherwise, you won't be allowed in. And if you are in, you'll be kicked right out. It's always easier to move with power than against it. That's why ambitious journalists promote the imperial narrative. 
It is why new money plutocrats always wind up aligning with establishment interests, and it's why so many other nations align with the U.S. In theory, markets and government checks and balances are supposed to keep the big players competing against each other to our benefit. In practice, the big players always wind up collaborating against us for their own benefit. And when the U.S. government isn't uh, coercing companies to do what they want and intimidating companies to censor websites, they're just straight up doing it themselves. Here's a piece written by Robert Inlakesh, published at thelastamericanvagabond.com. This Tuesday, notices were put in place for users seeking to access a number of websites critical of U.S. foreign policy, notifying them that the U.S. government had seized the domains. According to reports, the majority of the websites taken down were linked to Iran or supportive of Iran, leading many to the conclusion that this was a targeted takedown of pro-Iran platforms. In an Orwellian Ministry of Truth-styled fashion, Without any pre-warning, content platforms such as Press TV have been axed from the internet. Iran's state-funded Press TV has already been subjected to takedown across social media, including having at least eight separate YouTube channels banned and even company emails blocked. So there it is right there in the first two paragraphs of this story of the government actually seizing the domains of Press TV. The government had already coerced YouTube and other social media to ban Press TV. The notice reads for the Press TV's website, quote, The domain PressTV.com has been seized by the United States government in accordance with a seizure warrant issued pursuant to 18 U.S.C. 981-982 and 50 U.S.C. 1701-1705 as part of a law enforcement action by the Bureau of Industry and Security, Office of Export Enforcement, and Federal Bureau of Investigation. If correct, this means that the FBI has been involved in some sort of censorship campaign. CNN has quoted an unnamed U.S. national security official who allegedly told them that the websites were taken down over alleged, quote, disinformation efforts. There are also other allegations about the websites being taken down for support of terrorism. However, these allegations are not yet substantiated as a reason behind the U.S. government's move. It's not just press TV, however, that has been silenced. Also, a Bahrainian independence news outlet based out of the United Kingdom, Lua Lua, has also been taken down. Similarly, the Al-Mizra website linked to Yemen's Ansrallah movement, which is currently fighting Saudi Arabia, has also been blocked. On top of this, pro-Palestinian sites such as Pal Today has also been targeted. The Jerusalem Post noted that in last October, the U.S. Department had announced its seizure of 92 domains allegedly linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, which was registered as a terrorist organization by the Trump administration. The IRGC is essentially Iran's second military and is not an independent group. Therefore, the designation made little sense. 
The fact that this has been done targeting Iran's only English language news channel, not even a week after the election of the Islamic Republic's new president, Ibrahim Raisi, speaks volumes in and of itself. As someone who has worked with Press TV as a journalist for three years, it is truly saddening to see all the work I have done there and the work my colleagues of my colleagues simply disappear due to the arrogance of a U.S. government which has apparently forgotten that freedom of speech and journalism is a right. Funnily enough, for a country that is portrayed as such an opponent of freedom of speech compared to the U.S., some of the first journalists allowed to question Iran's president-elect Ibrahim Raisi were reporters from U.S. outlets like CNN. Press TV is banned from British television and its YouTube channels are repeatedly taken down, with even its UK branch, Press TV UK, having had its channel banned without strikes or reason. I was working in the UK office at the time that Press TV UK was taken down from YouTube. After roughly five attempts to contact YouTube, eventually we gave up with no response or justification given for their action. The Times later wrote an article in which they practically justified the takedown of the channel, claiming that it spread pro-Tehran and anti-Israel propaganda. Apparently, if you say anything that supports Iran or its allies, you are now a target, because free speech only goes as far as saying things that the government doesn't mind you saying in the West. It is obvious that in many countries around the world, people live under dictatorships, and so censorship is expected. The problem with the West is a claim that it claims to stand by free speech principles and democratic values, although this is clearly not the case, making it worse than the dictatorships due to the hypocrisy of it all. At least people living in a dictatorship like in Saudi Arabia know full well that they have no right to say what they feel. But in the United States and elsewhere in the West, you are told you can speak freely, only to later suffer the consequences. Now through the power of internet giants, that right is largely being dismantled. And for more on this story, here's a piece written by David Kravitz, published at Wired.com. When U.S. authorities shuttered sports wagering site Bodog.com last week, it raised eyebrows across the net because the domain name was registered with a Canadian company, ostensibly putting it beyond the reach of the U.S. government. Working around that, the feds went directly to VeriSign, a U.S.-based internet backbone company that has a contract to manage the coveted .com and other generic top-level domains. EasyDNS, an internet infrastructure company, protested that the, quote, ramifications of this are no less than chilling and every single organization branded or operating under .com, .net, .org, .biz, etc. needs to ask themselves about their vulnerability to the whims of U.S. federal and state lawmakers. But despite EasyDNS's and others' outrage, the U.S. government says it's gone that route hundreds of times. Furthermore, it says it has the right to seize any .com, .net, and .org domain name because the companies that have the contracts to administer them are based on United States soil, according to Nicole Navas, an Immigration and Customs Enforcement spokeswoman. The controversy highlights the unique control the U.S. continues to hold over key components of the global domain name system, 
and rips a band-aid off a historic sore point for other nations. A complicated web of bureaucracy and Commerce Department dictated contracts signed in 1999 established that key domains would be contracted out to Network Solutions, which was acquired by VeriSign in 2000. That cemented control of all important .com and .net domains with a U.S. company. VeriSign, putting every website using one of those addresses firmly within reach of American courts, regardless of where the owners are located, possibly forever. The government, Navas said, usually serves court-ordered seizures on VeriSign, which manages domains ending in .com, .net, .cc, .tv, and .name, because foreign-based registrars are not bound to comply with U.S. court orders. The government does the same with the nonprofit counterpart to VeriSign that now manages the .org domain. That is a public interest registry, which, like VeriSign, is based in Virginia. VeriSign, for its part, said it is complying with U.S. law. Quote, VeriSign responds to lawful court orders subject to its technical capabilities, the company said in a statement. When law enforcement presents us with such lawful orders impacting domain names within our registries, we respond within our technical capabilities. VeriSign declined to entertain questions about how many times it has done this. It often complies with U.S. court orders by redirecting the DNS domain name system of a domain to a U.S. government IP address that informs online visitors that the site has been seized. Quote, Beyond that, Further questions should be directed to the appropriate U.S. federal government agency responsible for the domain name seizure, the company said. And finally, another piece by Edward Snowden. Once again, you can find Edward Snowden's writing at edwardsnowden.substack.com. The first thing I do when I get a new phone is take it apart. I don't do this to satisfy a tinkerer's urge or out of political principle, but simply because it is unsafe to operate. Fixing the hardware, which is to say surgically removing the two or three tiny microphones hidden inside, is only the first step of an arduous process. And yet, even after days of these DIY security improvements, my smartphone will remain the most dangerous item I possess. Prior to this week's Pegasus Project, a global reporting effort by major newspapers to expose the fatal consequences of the NSO group, the new private sector face of an out-of-control insecurity industry, most smartphone manufacturers, along with much of the world press, collectively rolled their eyes at me whenever I publicly identified a fresh out-of-the-box iPhone as a potentially lethal threat. Despite years of reporting that implicated the NSO group's for-profit hacking of phones in the deaths and detentions of journalists and human rights defenders, despite years of reporting that smartphone operating systems were riddled with catastrophic security flaws, a circumstance aggravated by their code having been written in aging programming languages that have long been regarded as unsafe, and despite years of reporting that even when everything works as intended, the mobile ecosystem is a dystopian hellscape of end-user monitoring and outright end-user manipulation. It is still hard for many people to accept 
that something that feels good may not in fact be good. Over the last eight years, I've often felt like someone trying to convince their one friend who refuses to grow up to quit smoking and cut back on the booze. Meanwhile, the magazine ads still say nine of ten doctors smoke iPhones and unsecured mobile browsing is refreshing. In my infinite optimism, however, I can't help but regard the arrival of the Pegasus Project as a turning point. A well-researched, exhaustively sourced, and frankly, crazy-making story about a winged Trojan horse infection named Pegasus that basically turns the phone in your pocket into an all-powerful tracking device that, be can turn, that can be turned on or off remotely, unbeknownst to you, the pocket's owner. Here is how the Washington Post describes it. The text delivered last month to the iPhone 11 of Claude Mangan, the French wife of a political activist jailed in Morocco, made no sound. It produced no image. It offered no warning of any kind as an iMessage from somebody she didn't know delivered malware directly onto her phone and passed Apple's security systems. The examination was unable to reveal what was collected, but the potential was vast. Pegasus can collect emails, call records, social media posts, user passwords, contact lists, pictures, videos, sound recordings, and browsing histories, according to security researchers and NSO marketing materials. The spyware can activate cameras or microphones to capture fresh images and recordings. It can listen to calls and voicemails. It can collect location logs of where a user has been and also determine where that user is now, along with data indicating whether the person is stationary or if moving, in which direction. And all of this can happen without a user even touching her phone or knowing she has received a mysterious message from an unfamiliar person. In Mangan's case, a Gmail user going by the name Lina Keller 2203 in short, the phone in your hand exists in a state of perpetual insecurity, open to infection by anyone willing to put money in the hand of this new insecurity industry. The entirety of this industry's business involves cooking up new kinds of infections that will bypass the very latest digital vaccines, aka security updates, and selling them to countries that occupy the red-hot intersection of a Venn diagram, between desperately craves the tools of oppression and sorely lacks the sophistication to produce them domestically. An industry like this, whose sole purpose is a production of vulnerability, should be dismantled. Even if we woke up tomorrow and the NSO group and all of its private sector ilk had been wiped out by the eruption of a particularly publicly minded volcano, it wouldn't change the fact that we're in the midst of the greatest crisis of computer security in computer history. The people creating the software behind every device of any significance, the people who helped make Apple, Google, Microsoft, an amalgamation of miserly chip makers who want to sell things, 
not fix things, and the well-intentioned Linux developers who want to fix things, not sell things, are all happy to write code in programming languages that we know are unsafe because, well, that's what they've always done. And modernization requires a significant effort, not to mention significant expenditures. The vast majority of vulnerabilities that are later discovered and exploited by the insecurity industry are introduced for technical reasons related to how a computer keeps track of what it's supposed to be doing at the exact time the code is written, which makes choosing a safer language a crucial protection, and yet it's one that few ever undertake. If you want to see change, you need to incentivize change. For example, if you want to see Microsoft have a heart attack, talk about the idea of defining legal liability for bad code in a commercial product. If you want to give Facebook nightmares, talk about the idea of making it legally liable for any and all leaks of our personal records that a jury can be persuaded were unnecessarily collected. Imagine how quickly Mark Zuckerberg would start smashing the delete key. Where there is no liability, there is no accountability. And this brings us to the state. State-sponsored hacking has become such a regular competition that it should have its own Olympic category in Tokyo. Each country denounces the other's efforts as a crime while refusing to admit culpability for its own infractions. How then can we claim to be surprised when Jamaica shows up with its own bobsled team or when a private company calling itself Jamaica shows up and claims the same right to cool runnings as a nation state. If hacking is not illegal when we do it, then it will not be illegal when they do it, and they is increasingly becoming the private sector. It's a basic principle of capitalism. It's just business. If everyone else is doing it, why not me? This is a superficially logical reasoning that has produced pretty much every proliferation problem in the history of arms control and the same mutually assured destruction implied by a nuclear conflict is all but guaranteed in a digital one due to the network's interconnectivity and homogeneity. Recall our earlier topic of the NSO's group's Pegasus, which especially but not exclusively targets iPhones. While iPhones are more private by default and occasionally better engineered from a security perspective than Google's Android operating system, they also constitute a monoculture. If you find a way to infect one of them, you can probably infect them all. A problem exacerbated by Apple's black box refusal to permit customers to make any meaningful modifications to the way iOS devices operate. When you combine this monoculture and black boxing, with Apple's nearly universal popularity among the global elite, the reasons for the NSO Group's iPhone fixation becomes apparent. Governments must come to understand that permitting much less subsidizing the existence of the NSO Group and its malevolent peers does not serve their interests, regardless of where the client or the client state is situated along the authoritarian axis. The last president of the United States spent all of his time in office when he wasn't playing golf, tweeting from an iPhone. And I would wager that half of the most senior officials and their associates in every other country were reading those tweets on their iPhones, maybe on the golf course. Whether we like it or not, 
Adversaries and allies share a common environment, and with each passing day, we become increasingly dependent on devices that run a common code. The idea that the great powers of our era, America, China, Russia, even Israel, are interested in, say, Azerbaijan attaining strategic parity in intelligence gathering is, of course, profoundly mistaken. These governments have simply failed to grasp the threat because the capability gap hasn't vanished yet. In technology, as in public health, to protect anyone, we must protect everyone. The first step in this direction, at least the first digital step, must be to ban the commercial trade in intrusion software. We do not permit a market in biological infections as a service, and the same must be true for digital infections. Eliminating the profit motive reduces the risks of proliferation while protecting progress, leaving room for publicly-minded research and inherently governmental work. While removing intrusion software from the commercial market doesn't also take it away from states, it does ensure that reckless drug dealers and sex criminal Hollywood producers who can dig a few million out of their couch cushions won't be able to infect any or every iPhone on the planet, endangering the latte class's shiny slabs of status. Such a moratorium, however, is mere triage. It only buys us time. Following a ban, the next step is liability. It is crucial to understand that neither the scale of the NSO group's business or the consequences that has inflicted on global society would have been possible without access to global capital from amoral firms like Novalpina Capital in Europe and Francisco Partners in the U.S. The slogan is simple. If companies are not divested, the owners should be arrested. The exclusive product of this industry is intentional, foreseeable harm, and these companies are witting accomplices. Further, when a business is discovered to be engaging in such activities at the direction of state, liability should move beyond more pedestrian civil and criminal codes to invoke a coordinated international response. Imagine you're the Washington Post's editorial board. First, you'll have to get rid of your spine. Imagine having your columnists murdered and responding with a whispered appeal to the architects of that murder that the next time they should just fill out a bit more paperwork. Frankly, the Post's response to the NSO scandal is so embarrassingly weak that it is a scandal in itself. How many of their writers need to die for them to be persuaded that the process is not a substitute for prohibition? Saudi Arabia using Pegasus hacked the iPhones of Jamal Khashoggi's ex-wife and of his fiancée and used the information gleaned to prepare for his monstrous killing and its subsequent cover-up. But Khashoggi is merely the most prominent of Pegasus's victims. Due to the cold-blooded and grisly nature of his murder, the NSO group's product read criminal service, has been used to spy on countless other journalists, judges, and even teachers, on opposition candidates, and on targets, spouses, and children, their doctors, their lawyers, and even their priests. This is what people who think a ban is too extreme always miss. This industry sells the opportunity to gun down reporters you don't like at the car wash. 
If we don't do anything to stop the sale of this technology, it's not just going to be 50,000 targets. It's going to be 50 million targets, and it's going to happen much more quickly than any of us expect. This will be the future. A world of people too busy playing with their phones to even notice that someone else controls them. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can check out all the back episodes at You Can't Be Neutral. Dot com, And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. So yes, the history is, is useful. Uh, and and uh, not the history that you get in the traditional textbooks, uh, but the history that a, a citizen learns for himself or herself when a citizen goes to the library or when a citizen, citizen listens to the independent media, when a citizen reads alternative uh, journals instead of simply you know, watching CNN you know, and Fox News. So yes, history is very useful. It still is today. And I think that one of the things we might learn from history, and this is a very, very important conclusion to get from the long history of this country, is that the government's interests are not necessarily the same as ours. In fact, are rarely the same as ours. Uh, because if you think that the government's interests are the same as yours, then you think, well, if something is going wrong, it must be that they made a mistake because they really care about us. They don't care about us. The government does not care about its own soldiers. If it did, it would not send its soldiers into the quagmires of Vietnam and Iraq. It would not send them into a situation where they're going to come back maimed or without arms or legs, or they come back with their psyche destroyed if they really cared about the soldiers and cared about the families of the soldiers. It would not be taking the wealth of this country and squandering it on $500 billion this year on a military budget. Uh, that's a hard thing to grasp, that the government does not have the same interest as us. It's hard to grasp because we grow up in a culture where the, the language of the culture predisposes us to think, yes, we have a common interest. The, the Constitution starts off in a preamble, we the people of the United States, you know, establishes. It wasn't we the people who established the Constitution. It was 55 rich white men.